Hey, everybody. This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson. And joining me today, as he just reminded me, for the first time in 2022, the show's co-host and producer and my friend, Joe Armstrong. Joe, we've done a lot of guests over the beginning of the year, and I'm so happy that you're back and that we have space to do one of these legal roundups, which I always love having these conversations with you. Hello, Jessica. I love having these conversations with you as well. Happy New Year. It is indeed my first appearance on Passing Judgment. The last time you heard my voice was a best of guests episode that we did right around New Year's, which I had a lot of fun making. Eight or 10 guests spread out over some of our favorite guests that we have had since we started this podcast coming up on two years this summer. Recent guests, Jessica, we've had some pretty cool ones. Linda Greenhouse, uh, Supreme Court expert Molly Hooper, Jay Willis, Joel Payne, one of my favorite political strategists, and big news, sitting U.S. Senator Alex Padilla was on our show. Fun time talking to all those folks. But we've had some big news since I've last been on the show, since we've been doing other guests. Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement a couple weeks ago after serving on the court since 1994. Now, Jessica, we will set that aside, talk more about that when President Biden announces a nominee for Breyer's replacement. That's expected sometime over the next few weeks. But our main stories this week deal with the Supreme Court and voting rights, former President Trump and how he handled, and I'm using that term very loosely, documents and records from his presidency, especially those dealing with the insurrection on January 6th of 2021, as well as a topic that involves a defamation suit against the New York Times by former Alaska governor, vice presidential candidate, and conservative firebrand Sarah Palin. So let's dive in on that topic now, the defamation suit. So Jessica, I know you wrote about this in your MSNBC column. Can you give us a little bit of the background here for this? Absolutely. This is a big deal because the New York Times, the gray lady, they have not been to trial on a defamation case in a long time. And that's for a bunch of different reasons, which basically boil down to the fact that when you're writing about public officials, you as a member of the press have a lot of protection. And I know we'll talk about that in more detail in a minute. But This all comes from a 2017 editorial that the New York Times wrote. It was published on the same day as a shooting in Virginia that actually injured Representative Steve Scalise. It was on a baseball field. And in that editorial, the New York Times basically drew a line between gun violence and political rhetoric. Now, Joe, I can already hear you saying yeah, what's basically what's the problem with that? I think it's fair to insinuate that there might be a connection between what we say and what we do. And the answer is that the New York Times actually went further. And so they said, for instance, in relation to the 2011 shooting that grievously injured then Congresswoman Gabby Giffords in Arizona, They drew a line between that shooting and a political advertisement that was put out by Sarah Palin's PAC. I actually can't remember if we've ever talked about that political advertisement on the podcast before, but it was an ad that included a bunch of different congressional districts and crosshairs that you might see if you're looking through a gun on those districts. Those were the districts that Republicans or at least Sarah Palin's PAC thought were flippable or winnable. And the New York Times said there can be this line that we draw between, for instance, that political advertisement and that shooting. Now, that was erroneous. We know that the shooter uh, planned that shooting separate and apart and 
in fact, in time could not have been dependent on that political advertising. And so that's basically the background here, which is that the New York Times came out with this editorial in the wake of a 2017 shooting. And they said there's a link between political rhetoric and mass shooting, or they suggested there might be. And then they suggested this strong link between Sarah Palin's PAC and the 2011 shooting. Uh, and they retracted that just a few hours later. Right. So in summary so far, in terms of legalese and how it worked its way through our judicial system, the New York Times published the editorial in 2017. Then they retracted part of that within just a number of hours. Palin takes issue with this editorial and files a lawsuit against the Times. The suit is then dismissed and then appealed. And that brings us to what's happening this week with the court case we've got going on right now. So what specifically is Palin trying to prove here? What is the standard? That's a key word. What is the standard for defamation? It is a key word in the law. We talk about standards a lot. My students hear me say standards and prongs a lot. So what's the standard for defamation, meaning what do you as a plaintiff have to prove? You have to prove that there was a false statement of fact. So it's not a statement of opinion. It's not, I think. It is a statement of fact. It is, in fact, false. It is about somebody else, and that's the plaintiff. And you have to show, and this is what's key for this suit, not just that there was a reputational harm or that there's some kind of damages here, but that the statement was made with something called actual malice when it comes to public officials. So if you're a public official, if you think you're defamed, it's going to be much harder for you to succeed on a defamation suit because we think that the press should have more protection in those situations. Now, what is actual malice? I can hear you asking me. Actual malice means that the false statement of fact was made either knowing it was false or with reckless disregard of the falsity. Now, what can we compare that to? If Sarah Palin was an art teacher, for instance, in Alaska, not the former governor and a nominee to be vice president of the United States, to be the first female vice president of the United States, if she was a private figure, then what she would have to prove is that the New York Times acted with negligence, which is a much lower standard, and it just requires that they should have known that the statement was false. I don't know if for people it sounds like, what's the difference between negligence and recklessness? And I'll say a lot. So when it comes to defamation, we're fundamentally balancing two things. We're balancing one person's right to be free of reputational harm and false statements, and oftentimes the press's right to be able to gather information, inform the rest of us, disseminate that information, knowing that they have a pretty high level of insulation if they get something wrong, meaning that we're weighing this in favor of making sure that they're not chilled and silenced because we want them to be able to inform us. Right. And if I'm understanding this correctly, there are slightly different rules applied to public figures. Palin is very much a public figure. As you said, Senator John McCain of Arizona plucked her out of relative obscurity when he tapped her as his running mate. 
in the 2008 election against Barack Obama. Now, looking back, tying it into our show, we've had New York Times General Counsel David McCraw on our show, Passing Judgment, that was in March of 21, if you want to go back and check that out. He wrote a really interesting book called The Truth in Our Times. We had him on to talk about the freedom of the press and the legal defense of exactly that. So from the Times perspective, what does the Times have as far as First Amendment protection when it comes to a public figure like Sarah Palin? Well, a lot. I mean, I'm glad that you brought that up. So it's kind of the flip side of what I just talked about, which is that even if Sarah Palin can show this is a false statement of fact, it harmed my reputation, what their protection really is saying, can you really show that we made this with actual malice? Can you really show that we knew or that we recklessly disregarded the falsity of this statement? And I will point out that the standard that was created when it comes to these cases actually comes from a case called New York Times versus Sullivan. It's a 1964 case. It's a seminal case that we all talk about. If you're going to teach defamation law, you're going to teach the New York Times versus Sullivan standard. And of course, we're talking about another case dealing with the New York Times. But I do think it's worth it to bring up that one of the things we should really be worried about isn't necessarily just the New York Times. It's the other newspapers that are not as well-funded that might not have a general counsel that can come on our podcast and for whom really if they're threatened by a defamation suit or actually sued for defamation, that that could mean that it's not financially viable for them to continue. So I'm really talking about the local outlets, which are increasingly fewer and further between, and that's in part who we're trying to protect here. And of course, one thing to mention, we live in a very different world than we did in 1964, particularly when it comes to how information flows, but not in ways that I would say, and maybe we'll talk about this more in a minute, but not in ways that I would say undercut the necessity of protecting the press. So let's move to the big picture for just a second and talk about the wholesale changes in defamation law that are implied in this particular case. So although I know the press has a lot of leeway in the United States and many a president and other powerful figures would like to see these protections limited just a bit. Am I thinking about this correctly? I think that's right. And look, we would probably be talking about a defamation suit regarding Sarah Palin and the New York Times anyway. But the reason that I think it's really important and or interesting is that the case itself, in my view, is weak under the current standards, but it might ask that the current standards be changed. And when we're thinking about defamation law, as I just said, you know, the standard is really from 1964. Think of how different our world is just again in terms of how information flows than it was in 1964. And there are a number of conservative politicians and two conservative members of the Supreme Court, Justice Neil Gorsuch and Justice Clarence Thomas, who have said, we need to revisit this standard. It's too protective of the press. And that's, I think, really what we're thinking about or what I'm worried about when it comes to this particular suit is that it could be the vehicle that really gets this very conservative Supreme Court to rethink our defamation law and to rethink how we balance those interests of protecting an individual, protecting their reputation, but then also protecting the press. Because let's remember what the press is supposed to do, which is inform the rest of us, hold people accountable, and therefore protect the rest of us. 
Well, Jessica, you are absolutely right. There are entire media organizations and companies and even channels, mediums that didn't exist in 1964. And geez, you could fast forward to 1984 and say the same thing. But let's get back to more specifics here about Palin and this trial itself. How did the trial go this week? I know that Sarah Palin herself testified on the stand. So what did she have to say? How did that go? Well, uh, she was on the stand for a bit. Apparently, at one point, she said objection, and the judge had to explain to her that she is the witness and not her lawyer, and not the other side's lawyer, um, was not, in fact, able to say objection. She's watched too many Um, TV shows, Jessica, too many, uh, what are those shows called? uh, True, uh, crime shows, yes. I think our listeners may know, I may have mentioned this before, I don't actually own a TV, which is why I think I stumbled over what we call those shows. So that was, you know, a bit of a problem. She's really explicitly trying to frame herself as in this David and Goliath battle. She said, I knew I was up against Goliath and I felt that I was David. She's saying, I think there's a quote here. I had my number two pencil on my kitchen table in Alaska. So all of this is what? Trying to get sympathy with the jury, which is what you should do. So you never know what happens once you're in a jury trial. That's why it's risky to go to trial. And she's trying to say, it's just me. I'm just a you know mom from Alaska who happened to be on a national uh, ticket in a presidential race. And... Um, basically feel bad for me. Look at the New York Times, look at me. And one of the things I think she's really trying to emphasize, which is interesting, is that she said a couple of times, I think I feel powerless. And that in my mind is her trying to actually whittle away at the foundation of this New York Times versus Sullivan standard that we've been talking about. Because the reason we have a different standard for public officials is the idea that One, typically they're people who avail themselves of the public forum, meaning they know people are going to talk about them. Look, Sarah Palin ran for governor of Alaska. She successfully obtained that position. She voluntarily ran to be the vice president of the United States. And so she's voluntarily availed herself of the public forum. The other reason is, and therefore she has more access to the bully pulpit, right? She has more ability to say, New York Times, correct that, and or... I want to get my message out through other outlets. And I think she's really in saying, you know, I was powerless. It was David and Goliath. She's really trying to undercut the assumptions behind that standard. As we were saying before, Sarah Palin is very much in the public eye. She's a public figure. And if she's anything, she is very media savvy. I mean, she's on the stand. She is not just speaking to that courtroom and to that jury and to that judge. She is speaking to her base, the Republican base that idolize her. She used, you know, the the David and Goliath as a religious analogy, which ties into exactly what her base is. And that quote you mentioned before, I think an important point of clarification, you know, you're up against those who buy ink by the barrel, which is that famous quote about the newspapers. And I had my number two pencil on my kitchen table in Alaska and kind of juxtaposing the big nasty media with her fighting the good fight from her kitchen table in Alaska, which is something that she's played up every step of the way in her public political career. Now, let's pivot. So how about the Times legal team? What was their approach? Yeah, their approach really has been to say that the editor, James Bennett, that he didn't, in fact, intend to say there is this line between Palin's pack and the message that they put out in the shooting. And also, I think 
really a lot of what they're saying here is that Palin just can't meet the standard, that she can't meet the standard to show that they either knew the statement was false at the time or that they acted with reckless disregard. And it has been a kind of interesting under the hood look at a major newspaper, you know, working on a deadline, how words like incitement, we've heard a lot about the word incitement in this trial, how they have are, you know, inserted in the last minute, how things are retracted. And I just want to emphasize, given the current standards, I really do think this is a very strong case for the New York Times. And um, again, the bigger question is kind of what happens next to defamation. All right. So I know I've listened to you talk about this. I've done a lot of reading on the topic on my own. And although there are chilling implications for the free press, I don't know where this is going. So, Jessica, if you were to make a prediction now, if you were going to look in that crystal ball moment that we talk about on our show from time to time, you tipped your hand just a little bit there. What do you think is going to happen to this when it gets resolved? So I think that Palin will lose in the trial court. I think that she will appeal and then lose again in the court of appeals because, again, the current standard is that Supreme Court case from 1964. And then the real question becomes, does she appeal to the Supreme Court and do they accept the case? If they accept the case, it indicates that there are at least four votes to say we're interested in revisiting the defamation standard. We've seen the court accept cases in areas where we thought the law was settled before, in abortion, in affirmative action. And so if they decide to take the case, at least four of them, I think, want to revisit the defamation standard. And if they do, I suspect that that will be a new standard that is much less protective of the press. Lots of ifs in that prediction, Joe. Yeah, there always are. Nobody knows what's on the other side of that crystal ball. So, Jessica, then that testimony is slated to end today. That's Friday, with jury deliberations likely to begin sometime between now and early next week. Jessica and I will keep an eye on this verdict and keep you all up to date. But let's move on to our next topic for today. Our next story is an ongoing story with a rolling set of new developments that keep developing. It involves former President Donald Trump and the National Archives and a protracted legal battle that has been taking place over the last several months. The committee investigating the January 6th insurrection subpoenaed records from Trump's time in office to see if and how he might have been responsible for some of the events of that day when hundreds of Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol building while Congress met to certify the results of the 2020 election. Now, Jessica, I know we've talked about this back and forth before fairly extensively. The committee asks for documents and Trump's team of lawyers tries to prevent them from being turned over. And then that cycle washes, rinses and repeats. But the plot has thickened in recent weeks with revelations that Trump took some White House documents to his current residence at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. That was in violation of the Presidential Records Act. This law went into effect after the Watergate scandal, after Nixon attempted to use executive privilege, where have we heard that before, to refuse to hand over White House records. Those were records that included infamous and eventually incriminating audio tapes. We all know what happened in the Watergate story. There were a few years of legal wrangling after that, but President Carter eventually signed the law into law in 1978. And ever since, starting with President Ronald Reagan, Any historically significant records from presidential administrations have been the property of the American people. The public can access those records five years after any particular president leaves office, although certain items can be shielded for up to 12 years. And that brings us back to Donald Trump. 
It has come to light that Trump took boxes of White House documents with him to Florida when he reluctantly left office after losing in 2020 to Joe Biden. That's what happened. That's reality. It has also come to be known that some of those documents were rated as classified and others were labeled top secret. At this point, 15 boxes have been retrieved and returned to the National Archives. Now, Trump, as per usual, is playing it down as if this is normal. But is it is the question here. Harvard Law professor Lawrence Tribe has been on a Twitter tear about this controversy this week, and he seems to think that there are some potentially big implications to Trump's boxgate or whatever you want to call it. A pinned tweet from his Twitter feed on Thursday reads, now I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, POTUS, exclusively responsible to preserve his White House records, remove slash destroy is a federal crime that disqualifies from holding any office. This alone demands prosecution and disqualification. Attorney General could toss in seditious conspiracy and insurrection for good measure. And then moving on, another more recent tweet from this week. And he goes like this. Top secret means their disclosure could gravely imperil our national security. Attorney General Garland must make sure FBI Director Ray is on the case. Donald Trump can't be allowed to get away with sneaking top-secret materials from the White House to his lair, use the word lair, in Mar-a-Lago after losing to Biden. Now, Christopher Ray has been the director of the FBI since 2017. But, Jessica, wait, there's more. One last tweet here. If Article 2's list of qualifications for the presidency can't be enlarged by statute disqualify from federal disqualification, I think is what he meant here. He's uh, using some strange language. Disqualification from federal office for anyone removing or mutilating office records can't keep Trump from running again, but that's no excuse for not prosecuting him for that and other crimes. Now, Professor Tribe, you can follow him on Twitter at Tribe Law, and you probably should. Now, Jessica, that's a lot, right? That's a lot to chew on. There's been some other strange developments in the story that I will talk about in a moment as well. But can you translate some of this for us? The first question I have, what kind of penalties can Trump or members of administration face if charges are recommended for this kind of thing? Or put another way, does the Presidential Records Act have some kind of enforcement mechanism? Or maybe the simplest question of all, how big of a deal of this and is it a big deal at all? Great questions. Thank you for laying all of that out. So potentially big implications. And the reason I'm pausing with that so is that we've seen this before, right? We've seen actions taken by former President Trump and members of his administration where we look and think, no, that's just not okay. I mean, he the man was impeached twice. He wasn't convicted in the Senate either time, but he was impeached twice. And maybe I'm very jaded at this point, but I have a hard time thinking, even though it sure looks like he has some problems with the Presidential Records Act. I have a hard time thinking that the big penalties are coming his way. Now, when we think about penalties, they can, for other government officials, they can involve demotion, suspension, firing, their potential criminal penalties for destroying federal records. And as you laid out, and I think this is really the big one, would it mean that he is disqualified from being eligible to be the president again? That's the one where I just feel like, you know, we haven't, for lack of a better way of describing this, we haven't kind of seen that happen with respect to any of the other potential legal hot water that the former president has been in. So it's hard for me to imagine that it would here, but it certainly appears at the very least that he was not treating and maintaining um, these records the way he should. And 
I do just want to point out, and then I want you to continue, Joe, we're not talking about his personal records, right? Anybody who works in the government, works for the people. The president is one of those people. And these are our documents. That's why you have to preserve them. And that's why there's a big difference between the president as a person and the office of the presidency. And there's a reason that we want these records, our records, preserved. And there's a reason it's a problem that they weren't. One thing that Donald Trump is good at is avoiding getting into hot water, even though perhaps he should be from time to time. But, Jessica, what I want to add here is the story has gotten even more bizarre over just the last few days. There's a forthcoming book by New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman. The title of this book is Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. It's being published this fall in early October. Now, this book includes allegations that White House staff periodically found pieces of paper in a clogged toilet at the White House. The book doesn't get published until October, and Donald Trump has already denied the allegations publicly just this week, I think yesterday. But, and this is a big but, he does have a documented history of tearing up documents, if you'll pardon that lame pun. In the summer of 2018, Politico published an entire article about Trump's absolute zeal for tearing up paper and throwing it into the garbage or sometimes even just tossing it onto the floor, after which, in compliance with that law, White House staffers would collect the shreds, which ranged from sheets just torn in half to more confetti-like bits, and take them to a staff records management analyst team who would then reassemble the documents and tape them back together. Sounds like some weird Russian spy novel thing. We don't know where this is going, but we'll keep an eye on this developing story as well, Jessica. And I'm once again left wondering if there is any norm that Donald Trump cannot shatter. Please don't answer that, Jessica. Let's move on. Our next topic today involves a couple of our favorite subjects here on Passing Judgment. We love to talk about the Supreme Court, and we love to talk about voting rights and the erosion of them. As happens after every census, new population data means redistricting, and the state of Alabama recently redrew its congressional districts. A three-judge panel then said that the new districts were unfairly drawn to disfavor black areas of the state. Alabama then appealed to the Supreme Court, and in a recent 5-4 to decision, the court allowed Alabama's new redistricting map to stand despite its inequities. So the situation is in defiance of existing law, the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits the diluting of voting power of racial minorities. So, Jessica, the big question, $10,000 question, where have we seen this before? Uh, We've seen this before when it comes to abortion. So I wrote a column on this also for MSNBC, shameless plug, where I talked about what happened in this particular case dealing with voting rights, which obviously these are foundational rights in our country, and where we've seen this pattern of states really, I think, defying what is permissible under current Supreme Court case law, and the Supreme Court saying, you know what? go ahead. And that, of course, is the Texas abortion law, where I think there is an analogy. And we already mentioned just a few minutes ago that this is a Supreme Court that looks like it's really wanting to reevaluate their old standards. I've said this before, the Supreme Court feels like it has this, you know, big, you only live once energy where they realize they have a six to three conservative majority. And that means that you don't need the chief justice, the conservative chief justice. And in fact, they didn't get him for this particular ruling. And they can still decide that this maybe is the moment to further weaken 
the Federal Voting Rights Act. So I'd like to emphasize just a couple of things that when we're talking about Alabama, we're talking about a situation where black people are, I think, 27% of the voting age population, but under the maps, they would be able to elect a candidate of their choosing, given the numbers, in one of the seven districts, which is 14% of the districts. Now, the lower court, which was made up of a three-judge panel, two judges who were appointed by President Trump, the lower court said, this looks like vote dilution. And again, not a liberal uh, panel by any stretch of the imagination. And they said, go back and draw another district where you can have a majority of black people in that district where they can make their voice, make their vote count. And um, of course, we know the case was appealed on an emergency basis to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court did something really extraordinary, which is they said, no, you don't have to abide by that lower court decision. You don't have to draw the new lines. And so these old lines, which again, a lower court made up of two judges who were appointed by President Trump, has said is likely to violate the Federal Voting Rights Act because it dilutes the votes of minorities. That is the map under which Alabama will almost certainly have at least their 2022 elections. And I know that this all took place in what we've talked about a lot on our show before, which is shadow docket territory. Jessica, why did this happen under the auspices of that this time around? Well, because it was all uh, an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court. So that's the thing that we're seeing you know, more and more of. And I increasingly just think we should do an episode on the shadow docket. And I hope this isn't a situation where the listeners are groaning right now, as maybe my students would be. But it's so important that the shadow docket has just exploded in importance, by which we mean the emergency docket where cases are not heard the way they typically are. They're set on the calendar, there's a full briefing, there's amicus briefs, there are oral arguments, the justices go back behind closed doors, they talk about what they wanna say, how they're gonna vote, opinions are exchanged, they go through this long process of opinion writing, and then we finally get you know, the majority, the dissent, and the concurrence, if there are that many different opinions. It is worth noting, Joe, that the court set this case for oral arguments on the merits and that that will probably be heard next term, which, again, I think it's really inescapable to think anything other than the fact that the court will whittle away at what's left of the Federal Voting Rights Act. And conveniently scheduled after the upcoming midterm elections to boot. So, Jessica, what was the court majority's reasoning for letting the newly redrawn districts stand as they are? Yeah, so there wasn't, of course, as we said, like a majority opinion the way you would typically see it. But what we do have is this uh, separate opinion by Justice Kavanaugh where uh, it's clear from the vote breakdown that he was in the majority. And he says that he's just really worried that this is so late in time before the primary elections. I think the primary elections are set for May 7th. And he relies on this principle, this idea that when it comes to elections, it's really better not to change anything, you know, quote unquote, last minute, that changing the status quo could be really harmful. I think that just doesn't make sense for a couple of reasons. One, 
you can actually redraw district lines very quickly. We're recording this episode in February. The primary elections are not until May. Uh, primary elections also are not set in stone. So when we're talking about a violation of voting rights, um, I would think that that would also be something that's very important and that we should worry about potentially more than the calendar. So the idea that there isn't time, I think, just doesn't hold up. It doesn't make sense given practical experience. And it just fundamentally, in my mind, it weighs the interests all wrong, right? We're talking about vote dilution versus people having to move quickly to redraw district lines. And um, we could get more into the weeds of that particular principle where the court says, you know, we don't want to upset anything before an election. But I have to be honest, I just don't see that argument as holding water. Of course, that doesn't matter because at least five members of the court were comfortable with that. Well, right, and members of at least one member of the court themselves sits on that court because similar logic was applied to getting a Supreme Court justice onto the bench at one point in a ploy by then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So, Jessica, why is the court suddenly so comfortable letting legal inconsistencies exist simultaneously? Well, I think, Joe, that this goes back to something we talked about before, which is that this is a court that is really feels emboldened by their power. This is a court that's more conservative, I think, than any court we've seen in almost a century, if not a century, and this is their moment, and they're not going to waste it. And so I think in their mind, they've justified why this action is permissible. They've justified why they need to reevaluate the affirmative action standard, because it looks like that's what they're going to do, why they're going to likely overturn Roe versus Wade, because it looks like that's what they're going to do. And conservative jurists have been waiting a long time for this, and they have a very kind of no-time-to-waste feeling from my perspective. I think they ultimately want to get to the same place as Chief Justice John Roberts, but you know, as I wrote in my piece, he basically wants to take the longer, more scenic route, so we all just don't really see it happening when suddenly we arrive at point B. We were kind of lulled into feeling that this was slower and more incremental and more comfortable, but that's really what I see happening right now. Well, Jessica, as some people say, go big or go home. This is their moment. Grab that ring, pick your metaphor, whatever you like. So, Jessica, thank you so very much for having these discussions with me. Glad to be back. Happy New Year, as I said, to you and everyone else. Getting to be February now, pushing on towards spring. You can read these articles about these topics and other stories Jessica has written at msnbc.com. You can follow Jessica on Twitter and Instagram and sometimes TikTok at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at indepday. That's I-N-D-E-P. D-A-Y, and also making new music podcasts again at joearmstrong.com slash in-depth day. I'd love it if you stop by and check those out. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon. Have a great day.